0: In music history in general, we do see a progression of simple to complex. And then going back to simple again, there's sort of this roller coaster. and And I think Baroque really got to extremely complex mo- uh, music.
1: You are listening to and If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host. Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Hi, and welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, with my co-host, Elias Axel Pellerson. Welcome to the show, Elias. Glad to be, I could have you again. And we're going to talk
0: some some Baroque. I, I'm excited. It's uh, one of the titles for some book or some meme a long time ago, Going Baroque. <laughs> right. I think <laughs> that's it, what we're doing.
1: Yeah, that's that's for sure, and, and you know you you can't forget. I think it's in the 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 movie the, uh, um, oh what the heck, what was it? The 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 Beauty and the Beast, versus says if it ain't baroque, oh. don't fix it, something like that. Oh yeah,
0: anyway. if it ain't broke, <laughs> baroque. That's right. <laughs> Good music. A long time period to talk about too.
1: It is. By the way, now it's one of the things that's fascinating to me is how long of a period it is, and and mm-hmm. of of course like, um, even today, uh, you. Know, I don't know how you classify like the day, we say it's modern music, but what is that mm-hmm. What will people one hundred years from now classify today's music as? Um, yeah. you know i'm I'm not Sweet sure. Um, so uh, you know, going into what baroque music is, like what when we say baroque music, what are we talking about? Um, mm-hmm. we're, we're We're talking about a time period after the Renaissance, but like how does that kind of fit in? and And just real a quick overview when when people talk about baroque music, what are they talking about, Elias?
0: Yeah. Well, so in, at least in Western European classical music, we're, we're trying to sectionalize things, uh, so we can analyze them and talk about the change in styles. Um, and just like with any genre or any field, you can't really put a, a year on, on something like something started here and and ended here. But typically we're talking about the early 1600s, you know, around 1600 to about 1750. Uh, and that 1750 year is is important because it's the death of JS Bach who was one of the greatest composers of that era and so we just kind of say that the end of his life was the end of an era um of course that doesn't mean that he wasn't already pushing the boundaries and the, at the end, uh, at the end of his life he was also pushing compositional techniques and he was seeing some of the the new instruments we're going to be talking about so uh, it, everything sort of overlapped uh, i like what you mentioned about contemporary music or modern music we always teach that in our music history books as starting at 1900 till the present, but you know, we're already in 2022. That's a long time. And there have been many musical movements that have, that have sprung up in the 20th century. Uh, It's extremely diverse and things are moving very fast. So,
1: Oh yeah. And, and and everything, um, works with like for example you know Rachmaninoff you you can make a very good strong case for being you know the last romantic composer I mean he was you know his his stylings and stuff while while Mm -hmm. you know fed on modern um ideas like his his the way his his uh chord structures are and and his you know big kind of flamboyant pieces are Mm -hmm. do reckon back to you know uh, 50 100 years earlier than when he lived.
0: Yeah, he was actually panned for that a lot. He was seen as this secondary or second rate composer and, and pastiche composer, hearkening to the, the good old days that were supposed to be already dead. I mean, when he was performing and, and writing his second, third, fourth piano concerti, uh, Schoenberg was already in the picture, of Berg, you know, the right. second Viennese school. So <clears throat> he died in what, 1945 in Hollywood. And so uh, by then, uh, we'd already gotten the uh, second Viennese school and 12 tone serialism. And almost getting into minimalism, so he he was looked upon as second rate. But actually, he drew on so many great uh, compositional techniques. He went as far as Bach, and a lot of his pieces, a lot of counterpoint and beautiful soaring melodies. And and he really was a first rate composer. And now we realize that I I think and I hope, even though he uh, during his lifetime he wasn't maybe as well known or or as successful as a composer, mostly as a pianist.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you bring up a point. I think it's important to, to touch on, and I don't know the, the the total history of it, but I don't mm-hmm. think you can really talk about Baroque music without talking about counterpoint, because that, if I if I recall right, that is was um, the the primary means of people understanding or, or composers understanding how to write music and 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 this idea of counterpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, Can you, you know, how do you feel about talking a little bit about about
0: the role of counterpoint in Baroque music? So I think the idea of counterpoint and having multiple voices working uh, alongside or against each other really goes goes farther back. You mentioned, you know, Renaissance music flowing into the Baroque. And when I think of Renaissance music, it's, you know, Palestrina, Monteverdi, even before that. And for the keyboard, you get the early earlier uh masters like Merulo Froberger which we'll touch upon but um, there were a lot of singing parts motets things like that that were written by the likes of uh, Palestrina and that would have come from probably the church tradition you know as as early as the, the 11th and 12th centuries you know Herotin and and those types, but you had many different voices, and they were just adding and compounding upon that. This was before even notation was was really standardized. Uh, way you know, a thousand years ago, notation wasn't, and even five or six hundred years ago, it really wasn't standardized yet. So we were getting, uh, they were getting church singers, mostly male, of course, uh, singing different parts in harmony, what we would call now harmony uh, or polyphony, and uh, and how those parts interacted. You could get extremely dense, thick, uh, intricate pieces written. I, I think there's a motet by, gosh, no, I can't remember the name. I should look this up, but it's, it's maybe 10 voices or, or something like that, something right. crazy. So when we think of a Bach fugue, you know, in three or four or even five voices, he has a couple of five voice fugues in the, the uh, well-tempered clavier. And in art of fugue, I think he has some six six voice fugues, but uh, you know that pales in comparison to a ten <laughs> or twelve part motet. Uh, and so you know you get all this. Th- that was such the convention is singing. You know there were certainly string instruments that were accompanying, um, though not so much in the church, more in the in the royal circles, right? Um, and then and you had the traveling troubadours with their guitars and their lutes and things like that. But uh, keyboard, you know, we're going to get into that. And the polyphony on the keyboard and counterpoint on the keyboard wasn't really at the fore yet. Uh, right, it, it would come. It would develop later.
1: Yeah, and that and that comes really from the um, the organ tradition and and the mm-hmm. you know the the uh, what became the harpsichord. I guess the, um, there were probably earlier versions. I'm not sure what what they'd be called, but um, but these keyboard instruments that that really um, changed the the face of, of how we of, of how we. Even hear music, um, mm-hmm. and it made it a lot easier for for you know for a church you know to have instead of you know having four or five or ten voices you know you could do the same thing on one organ
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah um, cuts the job force down but. It sure, it sure <laughs> yeah. Does. yeah I'm sure the Fewer unions are not employed. pleased
1: the guilds are yeah. not pleased with that <laughs> The right. singers guilds yeah. Um, how would you um so like if we were to put a definition or or an um aural representation of 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 baroque the baroque sound um mm-hmm. how would you classify it how would somebody if somebody somebody heard something that was baroque how would they know that
0: yeah i remember studying again for uh, music history or even before that little theory things in high school and middle school and you know what were some of the characteristics of Baroque music, and one of them was was terraced dynamics. Uh, we certainly talked about instrumentation, and the uh, the ensembles were smaller typically. So, you know, there there weren't big symphony orchestras at the time, and that was just a logistical uh, matter. There there were a lot of localized uh, ensembles that would have been employed by kings or queens or dukes or duchesses or or whatnot, but. Uh, you didn't have the Chicago Symphony Orchestra or New York Philharmonic like we do today. Uh, so actually, a lot of people didn't hear those large in- instrumental groups. They were much smaller. There were not huge public halls yet. Uh, so all the the sound, it would have been smaller. And we've talked about this with Mark Ainley and some others, uh, how our ears and our perception and expectations have changed a lot uh, with the music that we hear and, and vice versa. They kind of help each other develop um and and now i think a lot of people look at baroque music and think it sounds boring uh i think it's there's a lot of exciting things going on uh in music history in general we do see a progression of simple to complex and then going back to simple again there's sort of this roller coaster and and i think baroque maybe the medieval like late medieval going into baroque really got to extremely complex mu- uh, music and then the classical era was sort of a rebuke of that, or just a—it um, was a commentary and, and reaction to that. When you get early Haydn, Mozart, even C.P.E. Bach, who was uh, one of Bach's famous sons, um, the, the instrumentation and the texture is really pared down. It's—it's it's really just one melodic line and a very simple accompaniment, almost harkening back to those troubadours, you know, where they would be just playing on their lutes uh 4 or 500 years before but when you get to the real thick of things in the baroque era uh even in the in the late well, I guess early baroque with Marullo and Froberger if you look at some of their ornamentation and some of their their uh, writing for more organ and harpsichord it's very dense and a lot of stuff going a lot of layers a lot of textures and those had to be differentiated somehow and uh it would have been hard to listen to i think it's still hard to listen to today uh, you know, if I go to a full Bach recital, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of energy to listen to that. It's much easier, for instance, to listen to a, a Chopin or a Mozart or a Beethoven recital. Mm-hmm. Uh, well yeah, when you, you have those
1: when, when you have those kind of soaring melodies that you can very distinctly hear and mm-hmm. you can recognize and you can kind of follow, um, and you're right I never I never thought of it that way but that might be one of the reasons why some people think of broke music as boring is because mm-hmm. you do have to put your own en- energy into it um, mm-hmm. if you're listening to it you have to like follow where is this line going and how does it respond to another line and and especially if you're listening to an, a fugue or something you know how, how do those things how do they work together and and, mm-hmm. and if we're not accustomed to putting, our own kind of energy into listening, um, it, it it's just going to turn into kind of white noise at some point.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's how you get overwhelmed and that's often how it is. Yeah. yeah. One,
1: one of the interesting, so one of the the uh, reasons why I wanted to have you on to talk about this is, is um, as a piano teacher myself, um, I've, I'm kind of focusing on the Baroque period with my students. I'm having them each learn some Baroque music and, mm-hmm. um, but uh, one of the reasons I think it is, in, in a way, um, kind of the, the grandfather of Western music, um, you know, I know in my theory class, uh, you know, we would we would laugh and say, you know, WWBD, what would Bach do, would be uh-huh, the answer yeah. to you know, so yeah. <laughs> many questions. But, um, uh, you know, uh, but how, however, so I'm having my piano students uh, learn this music at the same time, recognizing there was really no such thing as a piano at the Mm. time of these guys. And, and, and and which, which creates, um, uh, you know, some difficulty in in deciding on making decisions on how pieces should be played, Mm. um, how they should be heard and and how we hear them today. So I I kind of wanted to talk to you about that in, in context of the, the piano and, and keyboard, but the piano specifically and how we deal with some of these, these, um, these, uh, I guess issues they're just yeah. the they're, they're, they're facts of, of of what the music is versus what we um you know what we're trying to do with it
0: yeah that's that's a lot of stuff to unpack because uh, when you're teaching especially a younger student you, you can't really get into all the details of of how the piano developed and this or that and it's doubtful that um a child today would would even have contact with an instrument like a harpsichord, maybe an right. organ. I mean, there are still organs in churches that are being actively played. There aren't so many church organists being employed anymore, but um, you right. can you can go to that and hear. But uh yeah, that's that's tough in, in to fact, think about.
1: In fact, uh, um, one of the again another kind of instance that just happened to me recently. Maybe a month ago, two months ago, mm. a friend of mine um, in my church, actually, he owns a harpsichord. I didn't realize that. He mm. owns a harpsichord. used to work on harpsichords. And so I was over at his house, and I see this harpsichord, and I was like, oh, I have never played an actual harpsichord. <laughs> mm. And yeah. uh, and so he had me play it, and it was such a different experience. The keys were so light and so small and so delicate. And mm-hmm. the whole experience was such a different Experience from trying to play a piano, and yeah. I just I, I thought, you know, if this is what composers were writing for, they could not co- even conceive of a piano. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's both amazing that we can get the sounds we get out of a piano to, to you know to, to sound have this music sound good, and that's more of a uh, you know the what great composers these guys were. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but still uh, sounds
0: great on piano
1: it sounds great on piano yeah because they're, they're just it's phenomenal pieces i mean it's just they're works of art um but it was just an interesting experience for me to play that that harpsichord and 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 think about that in terms of what um you know what man what what am i trying to do as a pianist am i trying to in some way re- replicate a harpsichord am i trying mm-hmm. to enhance it like what am i trying to do as if i'm playing a, bra- a bach prelude for example
0: yeah, well, I think that's been. <clears throat> you're not the first to a- ask that question, and <laughs> I think a lot of uh, fa- pianists, uh, many famous ones, who have specialized or devoted their lives just to playing baroque music, and especially Bach. He seems to be the the pinnacle. Although I would I would say that uh, Handel, you know, has some wonderful keyboard music, and right. Scarlatti too. Scarlatti wrote over 500 sonatas. They're not the on the, on the same scale of a Mozart or Beethoven sonata. They're shorter, usually binary or ternary form, forms, but wonderful pieces and, and he wrote over 500 of them. Um, and there are a lot of pianists that come on different sides of that equation or that argument, and quite vehemently. I mean, there is a famous uh, back in the, oh, I don't know what, what maybe the 50s or something. There was a famous uh, harpsichordist, Wanda Landowska. She was a Polish harpsichordist. And she was part of the movement back then uh, that was performing, chose to perform Bach because keep in mind, a lot of these composers hadn't really been brought back or heard in, in public so much. There were revivalist movements of some of the old masters. Uh, and so she decided to really play Bach on harpsichord and on original instruments. And that was sort of the early instrument uh, movement starting back then before musicology and ethnomusicology was really a, an established field. And so she was playing Bach only on harpsichord and, and traveling with her instrument, whereas the likes of Rosalind Turek and many other, I mean, all other pianists at the time, all other keyboardists, because by then the, the piano had supplanted the, the harpsichord, essentially. Um, actually, it had supplanted the fortepiano, which had, supplanted the harpsichord. But all the others were playing this music on piano and there was a heated debate about what they should do. And Landowska told Turek, who was her her junior at the time, you know, you can you can play Bach the way you want to, meaning on, on the piano, and I'll I'll play him his way. You know, you can play <laughs> Bach your way, I'll play him his way. Uh, right. he would have wanted it only on the harpsichord. And there's there's a there's a good point to that. Bach never heard the modern piano. He never heard those huge sounds. There was no, uh, this was before the industrial industrial revolution. So he would never have heard a metal framed nine foot concert grand. in His life. He he did hear at the end of his life, some early, uh, early models of forte pianos, which we'll get into, uh, you know, he, he died in 1750 and, and Bartolomeo Christopher, really invented per se, the, the, early modern piano if you will in around 1701 something like that Mm -hmm. Uh, and he was really employed by the medicis in italy and had just a lot of uh, support and created these new instruments uh, keyboard instruments that could play loud and soft or soft and loud so the first names of those were pianofortes or forte pianos uh, as opposed to the harpsichords which could only pluck the string at a certain velocity and and so you couldn't play the same note and get louder or softer on it. And I'm sure at your friend's house, you saw that it didn't matter how hard you played one <laughs> note, it plucked the string at the same uh, right. you know, velocity. Uh, mm-hmm. And so having something that would have a leather hammer at first now felt hit it at different velocities and have loud and soft was, was quite a um, a change.
1: In right, and that, that's probably, I don't know if it's if this is the biggest thought process that you have to go through but as a pianist is it's one of the biggest is well so does that mean um because obviously there, there yeah. aren't um i don't think in the original scores there, there aren't like real dynamics <laughs> written in right right um and so we have to kind of make up dynamics or and and, and you know how do you do a, a a true crescendo or diminuendo on on something well a, you know, if you're trying to, to play it as a harpsichord, you you really wouldn't. You'd either slow down, or you'd, you'd have some other form of emphasis, but mm-hmm. you wouldn't you you wouldn't have the ability to have these kind of big, long, uh growing lines. Um,
0: yeah, right.
1: Or anything. Like I think that. that's All where the
0: terrace dynamics come in. So most harpsichords, you had uh, a couple of keyboards, multiple quick, levels ter- of keep.
1: Yeah, oh. yeah. Terrace dynamics. Explain what what that means. Yeah,
0: so that's basically where you have just levels of sound you you don't have these gradual uh, crescendos or decrescendos where you're gradually getting louder and softer you're just at a new level louder or softer and uh, we have to also keep in mind that in Bach's day though he might not have written dynamics for keyboard instruments that could have been achieved on something like an organ or on a or in an orchestra so they did have dynamics obviously and they did indicate dynamics but a lot of that was not indicated in the score because they just assumed everybody kind of knew what to play uh, and how to do it. They they all understood the um, the context and just the practice of the time, the traditions. Um, but there were also manuals written about how to do such and such, very intricate manuals, and we'll get into that. But the um, playing Bach, for instance, on a harpsichord, or playing something by like Jean Philippe Rameau, you might have. Two different uh, keyboards, and one of the keyboards would pluck would have one plectrum, which would pluck the string, and one would have two plectrums, or it would uh, it would pluck <laughs> two strings instead of one string. So you could get something louder uh, on on the same note by just going to the other keyboard.
1: Uh-huh. Oh, that's fantastic. That, yeah. that just reminds me so much of the piano, you know, where on uh, most of the strings, there's three strings that hit. and But mm-hmm. if you wanted to have a little softer, you could, there's a pedal that would actually shift the hammers a little bit. So you only hit two. And, yes. And, uh, you know. Well, it's, and that's uh, it,
0: supposed to only hit one, but because of the modern design, you can't quite get it over right. there. It would hit the next <laughs> string. Yeah, It's called the una corda, but it really is the duocorda in, in modern pedals. <laughs> right, catals, right.
1: So. And yeah. that's and and so it, it, that just harkens me back back to that kind of concept that yep. some of those old traditions still. Um, you uh, uh, so you you for preparation you gave me a list of of main composers for keyboard um, mm-hmm. the Baroque period and you started with uh, Claudio Mer, Mer, Merlu, Merulo Merulo, Merulo yeah. there we go. Um, so why did you start with him?
0: Well, because. Actually, I only came into uh, his music and Froberger because a friend of mine at a festival many years ago was playing some some of their works on piano, and obviously there were slight transcriptions because they wouldn't have been written for piano. Uh, Marullo's way back in the 1500s and died in 1604, uh, so he would have never even seen a forte piano, but uh, he would have seen early harpsichords, early um, you know clavecin in, in French, and um, I just forgot the instrument you is, can play Bebong on a is, uh, that the,
1: is that the early version of like a clavichord?
0: Yeah, like clavichords, things, yeah, like that. Um, you would have seen those. And that's that's the one instrument you can do kind of vibrato on a string because the the key actually hits um it's not a plectrum. It doesn't pluck the string. It actually has contact. And so if you vibrate the string, it actually vibrates the uh, vibrate the key it vibrates the string much like on a on a string instrument like a violin or a cello oh so it's um, like a. Um,
1: so. uh well what's that instrument called uh, from fran uh ho- uh i can't remember now it's a it's like a it's, it's a it's a handheld instrument oh
0: mm. it doesn't look like H- like honky. a vial it looks like a oh it or- looks like a box
1: <laughs> and you turn oh. it hand you turn it on Turn a handle, and I can't remember the name of it. It's got a those funny name. Hurdy Gurdy.
0: Hurdy Gurdy. Oh yeah, Hurdy Gurdy. Yeah, <laughs> Where it, those are it's, awesome. It's,
1: they are awesome. They're so great, and they play. You know, so they they have a um, you play a key, but it actually it, it it's a string. Uh, it, it, it's it's a it's something. It's a rotating wheel with a felt mm-hmm. or something on it that that goes up against a string, and so like a violin, it'll play.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, yeah, well, with yeah. the with the uh, cl- clavichords. You can't um, increase the sound once you've really played. You can't re-strike the string unless you let the key go. But when you're in contact with the string, if you wiggle your finger, vibrate your finger, it has a little, you know, little noise. That's fabulous. Like on an electric guitar, when you have the, um, what is that called?
1: The whammy Uh, bar?
0: The whammy bar, yeah. It's kind of like a whammy bar because it's pulling in uh, the string, you know. And so those are cool. So he would have encountered those. But in any case, I, I heard some of these transcriptions from probably from, from harpsichord or organ even, uh, to piano. And they were really cool, very ornate. And I printed some of those out and I've always wanted to perform them. There have been romantic pianist composers. Uh, when I say that the romantic era of pianism is different from the romantic era of music, I'm thinking of like 20th century, uh, Tausig and, uh, mm. or 19th century pianists actually. And, uh, who else? Who's the guy that did Firebird? Uh, Agosti. Those types, or Bauer, Harold Bauer, that would have made transcriptions of some of these uh, great works. Uh, Myra Hess, you know, she's a wonderful British, mm. she was a wonderful British pianist. She did a transcription, as you know, of the Jesu Joy Man's Desiring I by do Bach know for, for <laughs> the keyboard, and it's extremely difficult, yeah. and it really extends what the original theme was. Um, and so we, we've got some of these things handed down to us, so we can continue the tradition but those those two composers that i mentioned merulo and froberger wrote just beautiful ornate uh pieces that actually might have just been tra- uh, transcriptions of their own um uh what am i trying to say Extemporane- extemporaneous playing or uh, mm-hmm. they, they were just uh you know sitting down at the organ and trying to improvise something and that's what was written down uh, similar to Bach's first prelude, you know, we often think of that written out perfectly. It's probably just an improvisation on a uh, a nice chordal progression, right? And that's what we have passed down to us. And he created, you know, the Bach, the, the well-tempered clavier based, uh, starting with that one, but based on those kinds of uh, efforts
1: which and, which, which and i we we need to get into that at some point but you mm-hmm. mentioned a word a few times that i kind of want to delve into and that's mm-hmm. the word um ornament ornamentation mm-hmm. um and and because you see a lot of that in baroque music um yeah all over the place it, there's a lot of of these kind of ornaments and 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 when we talk about ornaments what what do we mean by an ornamentation or, or yeah. ornament
0: yeah, so it's an embellishment uh, of a note or of a group of notes. You mentioned before that it would be very difficult to uh, create, you know, volume or difference in volume on a harpsichord, and some of the ways that harpsichordists uh, use or some of the tools they have to create those sound effects are um, going to another keyboard, as I mentioned, but also they can uh, adjust the timing, like you mentioned. Or they can roll, like instead of playing a chord solidly, they can roll it. So it takes a little more time to get through all the notes. So your ear is kind of capturing more sound. It seems like there's more sound, even though there might not be. And uh, another way would be to ornament something. So instead of playing a singular note, let's say it was a C, there might be a trill on that C. So you'd play DC, DC. And I I can. Uh, I show you a few examples of, of those, yeah. but there are many different kinds of ornaments for notes. And depending on the piece, and depending on the composer, um, and the sign that they would indicate, you would have to know how to play all those ornaments. And some composers write uh, wrote entire uh, like catalogs of okay. When I say this kind of symbol, when I write this symbol, it is this kind of ornament, and you do this with the note. Yeah. So I think that's and pretty that's cool.
1: That- and it is one of the cool aspects of the because it is kind of a magician's trick that, that mm-hmm. pianists and, and keyboardists can play. Um, where you know we talk about we've talked many times about how when you hit a key on a piano, it's done, it's over with. You, you can't do anything about that. But you can trick the brain by playing it over and over and over again, and with another mm-hmm. key. Now you have this trill, and now you can have the idea or a tremolo. Now mm-hmm. you have this idea of a, a growing one. It becomes one sound where it can mm-hmm. grow or get softer, and um, you know it, it's a it's a cool trick that 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 we have at our in our toolbox.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of later, you know, you get into classical, and romantic, and and beyond that. You don't have a ton of different kinds of uh, ornamentation. that They exist. But the trill is really used a lot, and maybe the turn. But I'll just read a couple of these, and maybe I can demonstrate a few at the piano yeah, so people that'd can be hear wonderful. what they sound like. Yeah, so there's a, a trillo. There's a mordant or mordant, uh, trillo und mordant. Uh, uh, by the way, I'm getting all of this from um, C.P.E. Bach wrote this uh, ornament table, basically. He, he wrote a, a treatise, if you will. Uh, how to, what is it called? Like how to, I think I wrote it down at some point, point here in, in my notes. Uh, on, well, Johann Joachim Quantz wrote something on playing the flute where he talked about different kinds of methods and ornaments. And then CBE Bach wrote something called the essay on the true art of playing keyboard instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was Bach's son. He was- born in 1714, died in 1788. And so he came up with this list, this table of different ornaments. And so the Trilo Mordant, Trilo Un Mordant, the Cadence, uh, the Doppelt uh, Cadence, and the Edem, and then some others. So I'm going to just play the, the first six that I mentioned, and it's all based around the note C. So instead of C, uh, you're going to hear these different versions of it. And I'm going to take my headphones off, so I hope I'll be able to still react uh for the next like 30 seconds but here we go
1: okay all right so so as he's going there and you're going to see some subtle differences and some not so subtle differences between each of these ornaments um but they were all important so i think we're about ready to okay
0: i think i think i'm ready are you ready yes okay so this would just be a note just a c a treble C. So that's what it would sound like. So if I played that on a harpsichord, of course, it would, the sound would die away very quickly. So here's one way to embellish that, the trilo, which would be you know, just adding a few notes above. And here would be the mordant, the mordant. So you're kind of dipping below. You're going C, B, C. Um, And then here's a a trilo, un mordant would be Above and then going below again, filling it out. And then there's the cadence or cadence, which would be just, right? And then there's a doppelt cadence. So it would be kind of coming hmm. from below and going above again. And then idem or idem, which would be, right? So those are just a few, There, there are maybe another dozen or so ways to ornament that singular C. And if you were playing a note, you know, with the accompaniment in the left hand, let's say, you could get a lot of mileage out of that one note and mm-hmm. really let it sustain for a lot longer, uh, much like a, a violin would be able to do. But now you have, you can do that on a keyboard.
1: Yeah, that's so. that's that's wonderful. What um, and 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 you're right. Like when we get into the later period, the classical period, and such, you, you don't see as much. However, mm-hmm. my understanding was that that uh artists and and uh, uh performers would still utilize them um quite a bit but but it more mm-hmm. as a as a improvisational tactic mm-hmm. more than than it, within the composition itself
0: yeah oh for sure but i can think of in uh in chopin for instance he he does a trill a lot and there's a discussion on on certain pieces you know do you come from the note above or do you go from the note below in mozart for example uh which ones do you use and it depends on the context but they don't use all of these and the, the most common ones are a trill and they often go on for a long time so you might have one note i'm, I'm thinking of uh like the Ravel piano concerto the, the g major the second movement you've got a trill on it i think e and f sharp for I don't know how many measures, maybe twenty measures or something, and it just goes on and on and on, and that's just your basic trill. Um, so you don't have all these other setups and, and yeah. uh, turns after and before and, and all that.
1: Well, and if if, if I remember right, uh, I remember a discussion talking about, and I want to say, oh, was it Mozart's the uh, Turkish March? Oh, could uh, be. huh? Um, anyway, where you know da. um he I remember a discussion where where they were they were saying the reason why he used an ornament there as opposed to just writing in those notes was mm-hmm. so that people wouldn't ornament it
0: <laughs> Oh, oh <I laughs> so see, in yeah. other
1: words it was a, it was a way that the that he used to make sure that people were going to play that instead of something else and then that if that makes sense
0: ah oh, that makes sense yeah i i didn't know that i but i that makes sense that he would you know it's it's very well laid out and calculated yeah, um,
1: yeah. so um and he still has
0: the other ornaments later it's not the same um thing but but like the dun 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 dun, dun he has those right little, right Especially in, in the left notes. hand, the
1: the, yeah. the guitar parts, I call it. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's kind of emulating that Janissary music—the the low drums and the percussion stuff, and, right? And strumming, a lot of strumming. So yeah, yep. guitar and stuff. So,
1: um, cool. so this, this, I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about Scarlatti. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two Scarlattis here. So, yes. are, are, is this father and son uh, like the Bach clan?
0: This is, uh, yeah, slightly smaller than the <laughs> Bach clan. Bach had <laughs> 21 kids. <laughs> and uh, Alessandro Scarlatti had, I think, two kids, but I, I'm not quite sure. But he, he had one son that was a famous composer. I think Bach had four or five sons and one. Grandson that I I've actually played a piece by W.F.E. Bach, which was a grandson oh, wow. who who's
1: famous. Not not P.D.Q. Bach.
0: Not P.D.Q. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you wondering who that is, you can take a look. It's a fictitious <laughs> yeah. composer, but uh, anyway, um, yeah. But but uh, Alessandro Scarlatti was was quite well known already, and then his son maybe became even more famous, especially for keyboardists, mm-hmm. uh, because of all the sonatas he wrote. He just wrote so many um, sonatas for for keyboard and not for piano, but for keyboard. Uh, So it probably would have been harpsichord or or an early forte piano, but they're amazing.
1: Well, and that, that kind of brings up another point about the Baroque period in general. It's also where we get kind of the standardized um, for example, we, the standardized mm. forms, you know, mm-hmm. the, the sonata allegro form. Um, you know, the, a lot of the dances that 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 you even see into the 19th century. Well, um, not not
0: I would say not sonata allegro form yet, just the precursor to that. But all okay. the dance forms, because that was really uh, that kind of comes from almost a ternary that was expanded when you get early Haydn, late C.P.E. Bach, early Haydn, early Mozart. Okay. Uh, really classical but all of so, that so, so the help me notes,
1: out D- yeah. define for me the difference between sonata and sonata allegro because i always kind of saw those as, as similar oh or the three I, yeah same. i think
0: they're similar usually a sonata form is a first movement of a sonata and it's usually an allegro usually a faster form gotcha. so that that terminology is sort of interchangeable but when we think of the sonata or sonata allegro form having the three parts you know the exposition development and recapitulation that's almost an, an A, not quite an ABA, but close. Mm-hmm. So it's an expanded ternary form. And the ternary form was really, uh, developed a lot more in the, in the broke era. It's not that it hadn't existed. Uh, binary had certainly existed and all of Scarlatti's sonatas. Well, I don't want to say all of them because I don't know all of them, but, uh, <laughs> most of them that I know are binary forms. Um, but a lot of people in that era, Wrote in ternary forms. If you think of Bach, with all the dance suites that he wrote in the uh, mm-hmm. English suites, French suites, partitas, uh, in the minuets, you usually have minuet, minuet two, uh, sorry, minuet one, then minuet two, then you go back to minuet one. Right. right there, that's a ternary form. Or you have the minuet trio, and then back, that's a ternary form. So if you expand upon those, you know, I don't know if there's a direct correlation, but I'm sure that that was. One impetus for for the uh, classical period developing the sonata form,
1: and so and I think we also have to discuss a little bit like the, um, if you will, the economics of the Baroque period. And here's what I mean by that: you you know, you might wonder why do you have these dances, or why do the the, the, the styles of music that you have are really really come from two places? You're either going to have them from the church, or you're going to have them from the court. And so you have a a bunch a bunch of liturgical. Music, and you have a bunch of court dances and, and uh, minuets and such. And, um, and that's where a lot of these things come from.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's no question. You already answered the question. <laughs> yeah. It, it is. Money was a big driver, as it is always. And when you look at the, um, the wealthy kings and queens and dukes and whatever, they were the ones that owned these small orchestras and hired the musicians. Uh, And a lot of the great musicians from that day are associated with a particular uh, nobleman. Uh, The Medici's in Italy were were very famous and uh, supported the arts a lot. That's where you have Christoffery, who developed the first forte piano. And, you know, certainly that would have trickled down to the likes of uh, the the Scarlatti's. Mm -hmm. And when you have in Germany, a little bit later, I'm talking about the Etzer, Etzer, uh, Esterhazzi's. With Haydn, you know, supporting Haydn and all those orchestras. But all of these uh, royals and noblemen, they, they wanted to dance and have entertainment. And what better way than to have minuets and gavots and sarabands and airs and, you know, oh, and all you the movements. A-
1: and if you could have a court composer write original music for your specific minuet, yep. you know that yeah, what a what a great you know thing for your party.
0: Yeah, what a way to show your wealth, you know. Oh, Absolutely. I've got Handel in my employ, and he's writing uh, all the royal fireworks, the water music for, for right. king, you know. So yep. that's uh, so, uh, that's very impressive.
1: So you have a name here, Jean Philippe Rameau, uh, mm-hmm. which I assume is French. Um, yes.
0: <laughs> talk about yep. uh, Jean Philippe a little bit. Well, so Ramos was, was a great composer, and I bring him up because uh, the ornaments that are in in his music are pretty phenomenal and and very intricate. And I don't think a lot of keyboardists play his music. Uh, mostly it's Bach, and then uh, way second place is Scarlatti, and that's kind of about it. We don't touch yeah. many others. But uh, in more recent years, there's one of my favorite pianists, Grigory Sokolov, Um who has been recording, you know, for, for many years, but he has put out a few things with some uh, works by Rameau from this whole collection of pièces de clavecin, I think it's, or pièces de clavecin. And one of them, I actually put a, uh, a link there, which we can put in the program notes. It's from a piece called, called Le Poule, which is the chicken. And it sounds like, you know, a chicken just uh, yeah. pecking and going, you know, all the time. And I, the, the link that I gave you was just from a YouTube link of the very o- highly ornamented section in that piece. Although, if you want to listen to the whole piece, it's about two, two and a half minutes long. Um, but he, he wrote incredible ordes. They're, they're like these orders of uh, groups of works for clavicin or harpsichord. And you can go online now on YouTube. It's such a phenomenal uh, resource and watch harpsichord display these, uh, these pieces. But not a lot of pianists play them. Uh, they're extremely difficult to play. There's, there's one piece that is, uh, again, from a, I think it's an encore from a Sokolov recital that made it to a DVD, and it's a Rameau, um, what is it called, Le TikTok shock And it's written for, I actually did this for my class piano uh, courses at school. I played them the original harpsichord version which is written for two harps or two keyboards, you know, two okay. keyboards. And uh, because a lot of the notes, uh, it's an F major and a lot of the notes overlap. So you're having double mm. Fs played, double Cs played. And then I asked them, well, that was played on two keyboards. How would you play that on a, uh, you know, in a modern, on a modern instrument. And some of them said, well, you'd probably need two pianos or two pianists. And I said, well, how would one person play it? And you know, they they said, well, maybe play it an octave up. And I said, well, that's kind of cheating. You can't do that. (laughs) You have to play it in the same register. It won't sound the same, blah, blah, blah. And then we watched uh, Sokolov do it. And the manner in which he, he uh, makes that work, is just phenomenal. You know, the hands are superimposed almost. Um, And, and it's just so much clarity and ornamentation. So, because I think of his performances, those pieces have skyrocketed and, and almost gone viral and people are playing that that stuff now. Um, so I would Which, I'd highly exciting. recommend yeah, listening.
1: That's great. Yeah. Um, okay. So I want to talk about Bach, Handel, and Vivaldi, but before that I got to talk mm-hmm. about this guy that I'm not as familiar with, uh, Christoffery. Um, yes. So let's talk about him. And then I want to go back and talk about the big three.
0: Well, he's he's a quick one. It's just that he was really the the pioneer on the um, logistical end of, of keyboard development. Really, he was employed by the Medici's, and he is he was a performer himself. You know, he's not well known as a performer or a composer per se. I don't. I have never seen any works that he performed, but he was a technician and very skilled one at that, and created these early models of forte pianos. Um, just trying w- with new mechanisms because he saw that the harpsichords were plucking the strings and he just thought, well, what can we do to to increase the, the possibilities and give us dynamics? And you know, he, he created these models. I think one of them is in the Smithsonian uh, behind some glass. I think it still actually works and maybe they trot it out once a year and play it. Uh, but it has leather uh, covered hammers instead of the typical ones that are felt now in modern pianos but leather covered hammers and they hit the string and and instead of plucking the string. So he, he really developed that. And I think he made some for, for the for royalty in Russia. I can't remember. I should have done a little more research, but I do know that his models were, were the same um, ones that Bach would have seen late in his life. And uh, at first he didn't like the new instruments and probably they just were such early replicas and they just didn't, play very well the action probably wasn't very uh very solid or sturdy and then they they developed a lot more but he he probably saw some early ones didn't like him and then later some better models improved models and he said oh these are actually you know good so
1: that's that's where he fits in that's wonderful and 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 you can see that development um of the early pianoforte, you know Mm -hmm. take place that that is that's um that's a great piece of history there
0: yeah, and if we were talking about later, like into the classical and early uh, and romantic eras, you know, piano building and makers that that exploded, and you get people like uh, Mozart and Beethoven. We've we've spoken about this even when we had Tom Posen on that <clears throat> with Beethoven, the piano maker was pushing him, and he was pushing the piano maker. Right. So the range would have been you know five and a half octaves or something in Mozart's day, but by the time Beethoven, uh, by the time of his death. The keyboard range had already extended an octave or almost an octave and a half because the capabilities were there, the strengthening materials were there. We weren't quite to huge cast iron frames yet, but um, the range was getting bigger. And Broadwood and and Valter, these people were making bigger and larger instruments uh, right. with more sound. And the halls were getting people were going to concerts. It wasn't only royalty in, in the in the courts, so uh, you might hear him in a salon or you know, certainly by Chopin and Liszt. and Schumann's day, you, you were going to salon concerts and uh, you could have metal-framed instruments. You know, that's, a,
1: that's actually, and that's something that I haven't thought about too much, um, but the idea of of any instrument, but the piano specifically becoming kind of the instrument of the people when it is mm-hmm. such a big, heavy, uh, expensive instrument. Um, but if you thought about it, let me put it this way. Back in the day, I, I imagine, um, uh, you know, uh, I could imagine, let's say, Mozart playing a pianoforte, playing in a concert. What would that mm-hmm. look like? Well, it was probably much different than what we imagine somebody playing a piano at Carnegie Hall. Oh, <laughs> for
0: know? sure. Yeah, there were not different.
1: that many people. There was, it was not that, you know, in other words, you, you, you could get away with a smaller, more delicate instrument um, yeah, than yeah, you, you could today, couldn't. for sure.
0: Yeah. And when, when you do trot out some of those early, uh, like a forte piano in a hall, it's tough. You can't do it in in a huge hall sometimes, or, or even when you do play Mozart uh, concerti with modern pianos, you often see orchestras pare down the orchestra. That, so they mm-hmm. don't use the hundred people, you know, on stage, they might pare it down to 50 people and that's plenty, uh, right. for, for just the balance. And, um, there was something else I was I was thinking about as you brought that up that uh yeah he would have played for smaller audiences and well I can't think of it now, but it will
1: Okay. It will <laughs> I'm sure it'll come back. Yeah. It's okay. Um I want to talk about Vivaldi. Um mm-hmm. Vivaldi is a really important composer. We all know him by his um the 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 uh four seasons, of course. That's you know right. maybe you know, outside of some of Bach's pieces and 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 Messiah, maybe the most you know well known Baroque piece of all time. Yeah, his Four Seasons. Yeah, um, but talk about Vivaldi and 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 he while he wasn't a, a keyboard composer, um, what was his influence and what what made him an important composer during that time?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I'm not an ex- I've actually played violin and I've performed a couple movements from the Four Seasons. Uh, as a violin soloist, actually, uh, when I was in high school, but the um, you know that's such an influential work. But he wrote so much uh, music, and and all the concerti grossi of uh, yeah. that time. A lot of that's composers. That's kind of, that's wrote kind of
1: where I was going. Is is that the yeah. the, the idea of the con- the concerti grossi, grosso was he was a he was a big influence on that, wasn't he?
0: Yeah, I mean, he he wrote so many of those, and he did write uh, other concerti where you were highlighting the instrument. It was a little different from the romantic era where you really had the, the big soloist hard on the sleeve kind of thing. Um, and with the Baroque uh, groups, you often played with the 2D sections, which are when all the orchestra members play. So when you see somebody play, uh, for example, Summer from the Four Seasons, they might play some of the uh, parts that, all, that everybody plays. Um, and some of their things that they play are exactly the same. So uh, he developed those. He had a lot of flute. Conchardi Quants also is another composer from that era that wrote a lot of flute. Conchardi. So wind and string instruments were really at the fore. Oh yeah, I was thinking of another thing that I was going to bring up. The the piano is now sort of, I guess you could say, the king of instruments. You know, all mm. all composers. Well, I don't know how many contemporary now you can you can uh, be a composer and just work on a laptop. Uh, right. create sound effects. And you can be a, more of a DJ producer type composer. But when we're talking about, you know, Western classical music, still up till the, the late 20th century, all, all the great ones, or most of them were using piano as one of their primary sources or going to the piano to hear how things laid out and sounded together, because you can. Uh, but obviously, piano wasn't always the king, I would say organ was the king of of instruments for a long time and that Mm. became just the the place to hear everything at once you could do so much on an organ if you went uh and that was one of the main places people heard live music was you go to church and you hear either singing or organ
1: and Um, and if you think about an organ um it really was i I think of it almost as a an ancient synthesizer because you could Cool. you could really sculpt the sound like mm-hmm. no other instrument could you could mm-hmm. you could have multiple instruments you could you could do all sorts of things that that we think of you know synth players doing today you mm-hmm. would be doing on an organ
0: yeah yeah and i have to say i don't know if if there's anything that quite matches the the glory when you go to an incredibly large church with a great organist and you have you know, yeah. 10,000 pipes there's very There's little that can like beat that. that experience.
1: No. And and by the way, that's the other interesting thing about an organ is that, uh, and we'll say a church, primarily you're going to find them in churches. Yeah. So, the the church where you have this organ is really, that is the instrument. The instrument mm-hmm. is the church itself. It's not just. It's built just, in, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah. well, I don't even think, it, I don't even mean like. Well, the residents too, yeah. Right. You can't really like,
0: separate them.
1: You can't separate the hall. You can't separate what you're hearing. Um, you know, mm-hmm. where where a violin, that's you true. can take that anywhere. It's the the organ that, like, that's an experience you have to have in that one place at that one time.
0: Yeah, some organs have been designed, or almost like the the church edifice itself has been designed around the instrument. It seems. Yeah, um, and that's yeah, that's true. That's and you it, don't very, get that, you know, at least with the the Western monotheistic the, the main three. Uh, you don't get instrumentation. Like I, am from a Jewish tradition and, and Orthodox Judaism, you can't play instruments on the Sabbath. And that's when you would go typically to synagogue as you know, everybody would go on the Sabbath. Uh, and you, it would all, always be vocal. It would always be a cappella. Mm. And so as, as I've grown up, I've played in a lot of series that are at churches, oftentimes with an organ there and they have a, an additional piano. It's much harder to play at a synagogue or have a, a series at a synagogue because the infrastructure just isn't there and it's not in the tradition um that has right. been built for five six hundred years so, right i'm interested yeah, how it's, that still affects us
1: it is um yeah uh, so and, and i want we got to talk about handle Handel, Handel yeah. is i uh, it's funny um i'll ask my students you know who's the big rock star in the uh uh, in the Baroque period. And I think, you know, most, a lot of kids, especially, would say Bach. And that's yeah. not really not true. <laughs> um, yeah. F- he, I mean, he wasn't a nobody, nobody, but he's pretty close to a nobody. Um, it was really Handel was the big rock star during that period of time. In fact, I think there's stories of Handel, of Bach attempting to go see Handel and, and missing him. But, uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think um, so, yeah. Yeah, Handel is just a remarkable composer and I I think an underappreciated composer personally even mm-hmm. with Messiah. Um the, yeah. the, his water mu- I mean but but talk to talk to us a, about his keyboard music like
0: um so it's interesting out of the big those big 3 and and I've played some other baroque composers as well but I've actually not performed Handel. He's written some incredible suites, one or two which are very famous the the um Harmonious Blacksmith. Actually, I probably played a movement of that one. I was very young. I just don't remember. But uh like you said, Bach was was well known, kind of on a local in a local level. He was known as the great organist and, and this wonderful performer, and people would come from all over to hear him perform. But you know, maybe in Germany, maybe in Austria, Handel yeah. was known throughout Europe. He was living in in England. He was famous there. You know, being writing writing music for the kings and queens, and he was. Uh, very well known on the mainland in, in Europe, in Germany, Austria. And, and, and this is when, when England kind
1: of ruled the world, you know. Yeah. It, it, was, it was a very English-centric world at that
0: point. Yeah. I mean, he was George. He anglicized his name. We think of him as George, like, you know, not Ge- Georg or something, which it probably yeah. would have been in German, and Frederick, not Friedrich. But, yeah, he, he was famous, and certainly his water music is well known. His Messiah is extremely well known. Uh, some of his suites are sort of well-known for piano, but not played that often. Uh, he doesn't have quite as much vo- the volume of repertoire for keyboard as he did, as someone like Bach or even Scarlatti. And he wrote a lot for uh, different instruments, whatever that he was being paid to write. You know, he was right. always at the beck and call of, of money, and he was a very wealthy uh, composer in his lifetime. Uh, and so he just wrote tons of music for for royalty. And, and, uh, but he's a great composer.
1: And he's interesting. He's interesting. As I listen to him, um, he seems to be, if there's a bridge between um, kind of the early classical period, I do think of it as Handel. Um, mm-hmm. Just because see he that. seems to to incorporate, even in, in some of the piano music or keyboard music, um, you know, that, that idea of having a, a solo voice on top um with a with an accompaniment um mm-hmm. more so than than bach or vivaldi or, or
0: some of these other guys yeah i wouldn't have so i can see that yeah i can see what you mean he he was i mean he lived a long time too He, he did. Uh, let's see did he outlive all of them well but not by much so ba- uh, scarlatti bach and Handel were all, all born the same year and I think Bach, yeah, Bach died first, 1750, then Scarlatti, 57, and Handel, 59. So, yeah, he did outlive them, not by much, but... Wow, 1685 but was enough. a good year. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> Three big names were born then. So, yep. okay, so
1: Bach, we have to finish on Bach um, because, you know, I, I I do, I have a great affection for Bach. Um, mm-hmm. I think he's the most, uh, maybe the the most ingenious composer, um, uh, you know, of that time. And and he really was a Mm -hmm. very forward looking, even I, I I can't even describe just how smart his music is. It's just really brilliant. It's really brilliant stuff. And, and the more you dig into it, the, 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 the more he comes out as the smartest guy in the room.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a way good way to put it. You think of the, uh, D minor Toccata and, and Fugue, you know, for organ that's so famous, mm-hmm. uh, did-da-da, which everybody knows, and and I, it's good, but there's so much other stuff out oh, yeah. there that's wonderful, and yeah, uh,
1: well, when and- you start
0: delving into his works and playing them, it just feels also very wonderful, and yes, like wow, so many things are are coming to the fore, and and when you play his music again, it's one of those composers that you can revisit many times. Uh, for a certain piece and play it again and, and discover something new that you never heard before. So,
1: yeah. And, and, and he really does. And, and, and this is, again, uh, you know, we, we, a lot of people have talked about the well-tempered cl- clavier and, mm-hmm. and why that was an important um, work, both of those works, um, yeah. why they were so important and they were, um, but you can see uh the, the and when I say is forward thinking, I'm talking about like the way his his uh chordal structures work, um, the way mm-hmm. he moves in and in and out of keys so so easily and so like deftly. It's 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 amazing to to see him work that way. And and um and to take simple melodies and and turn them into really
0: grand <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I love my Bach.
1: Yeah, um, you know,
0: it's it's interesting. You Sorry, you brought up the whole harm, harmonic thing, and I think it's it's a really big discussion because, like we were mentioning before with Beethoven uh, pushing the piano boundaries or the makers and vice versa, with Bach, I, I almost think he was um, pushing music as a whole because there wasn't a, a tuning system that was consistent, really. Right. And the, the A, we talk about the A being a different pitch than it is now back then the typical a would have been you know around 7 i forgot 714 720 something around there hertz and now standard uh 4 sorry 440 yeah yeah, yeah. 420 and now it's uh, 440 and even some places uh in in Europe it's maybe a little higher 442 but that wasn't really standard and also the the type of tuning that was used uh, which is now kind of even tempered or he has the well-tempered clavier, but there are different tuning systems, Pythagorean mm. tuning and tunings that would make the fifths more pure. Uh, but then as a result, you get thirds that are a little bit out. Um, and because of how the physics works, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, if you do a perfect fifth, if you start at a low C, very low C, and you do a, a perfect fifth in nature, which would be a certain, um I, I think it's a three to two ratio. Again, I didn't really start <laughs> Do my research yeah, you know, that's right. for three this on ratio the, the tuning, yeah. but we've talked about it before. So if you do that and then you go to the D, three to two, and then you go to the, the A and you go around the circle of fifths, by the time you get back to the C, it's not the same C as if you had right. done octave equivalency. So it's actually more like a D, uh, C sharp or a D, it's, it's quite high. And so on the modern instrument, actually everything's out of tune perfectly. So it's just slightly smaller, a perfect fifth on the piano. It's not the same as uh, playing with a perfect fifth on a violin, mm-hmm. uh, and and so therefore you can actually go in between different keys more seamlessly. When you when you hear early music of even in, into Haydn or some other uh, Baroque composers, they wrote sonatas in predominantly some nice keys. You know, you'd have like C major, G major, maybe F major. You would didn't have a lot of pieces in C sharp major. They just it right. sounded bad. Uh, and it was meant to sound that way. And so when you have composers writing in a key that goes uh, for a small bit into this other foreign key, which is far away, it actually doesn't sound good. And it's supposed to not sound good. But right. when Bach wrote his well-tempered clavier, it, it's two books and there are 24 preludes and fugues each in all the keys. And he starts from C, then C sharp, D, E flat, etc., moves up the chromatic scale and they can they all sound good and you could move those to any other key and they would sound good uh and that, i think that was pretty revo- revolutionary at the time
1: yeah it really so. it really was and and, and it, let's also um talk a little bit about the the fugue as a form um sure yeah and and what that is and and what a prelude and fugue is
0: mm-hmm. well a prelude is just an introductory piece that's uh the the term and a fugue is if you think of a canon, like uh, everybody knows, row, row, row your boat. So you start singing row, row, row your boat, then somebody else row, row, row your boat right after. And you, you're kind of in sync with each other, but you're like a round, born, what yeah. we would call a round, one measure off. So a fugue is similar to that, but uh, on, on another level. So you take yeah. a theme, which might be a little more complex, and row, row, row your boat, but not necessarily. And you you uh, play that theme, and then another voice would come in with the same theme, but in a different key, usually in the dominant, so in, in the fifth note of the scale. Um, and then while you're playing that new one, the, the original voice, let's say voice one, doesn't just repeat it like you do in row, row, row your board, boat. It goes into some uh, material that would be accompanying the new theme, uh, which we would call the subject. And so then voice three might enter if you have a three voice fugue and with the same theme, but back in the uh, original key typically, and then voice one and two are kind of accompanying that. Uh, and then it can get more complex from there. Uh, most of the fugues in the well-tempered clavier are three voice, there are a couple two voice, couple four voice, uh, well no, uh, quite a few four, four voice, and I think yeah. two five voice fugues. And uh, the way that they build on top of each other is pretty amazing and not all five voices are necessarily playing at once but the the intricacy with which they're built is is incredible and actually there's a fugue i should have again again done my research for this there's a fugue that bach wrote that can be turned upside down and played with itself and works and that's really cool
1: well there's a famous story of him and a king and I again, I, I wish I I could remember it, but but where where the king gives him wants him to write um, a canon on a melody that he wrote that it was specifically written to not be canonized. <laughs> oh, okay. Interesting. And so and so he does it, um, and and he and he not only does it do it, but he does like you know four versions of it, um, <laughs> and you know it just blows everybody away. Kind of embarrasses the king because the king was trying to up. <laughs> Bach one and, of him, yeah. Yeah. And then, so then the king, you know, gives him gives him some other uh um you know uh uh task based on that, and and Bach turns him down, but he goes home and he writes an offering, which is mm. a, a musical a group. offering, yeah yeah a musical offering which he which he wrote which is i don't know 24 fugues all based on that same theme and amazing.
0: uh <laughs> and, yeah, you don't you, know, you don't mess with bach <laughs> no you
1: don't mess with like i said he's he'll always end up the smartest guy in the room.
0: <laughs> yeah yeah you can try but he'll, he'll, in the end he'll win yeah, but yeah it's pretty it, amazing it,
1: it's really amazing and then and and also the great thing about bach is um is he's relatively I mean, I, I kind of—he's timeless. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. I see him as a timeless composer. Yeah. He's relevant. His music works. Um, he, I, I think it was a story of, um, oh, what is his name in the 19th century, um, who found, "Jesus, Joy of Man's Desiring." Oh, um, oh you mean like Mendelssohn? Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn. Yeah, they helped yeah. bring him to I, revive. Yeah, theater. well. And this could totally be uh, not a true story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's beautiful <laughs> and romantic. <Cool>. Um, <laughs> but with the story, but there's a story of of Mendelssohn in an old library that that first sees Jay-Z Joy of Man's Desiring." Never heard the piece, but looks at the music and just starts bawling in tears because mm. it's so glorious and beautiful. And and that is kind of what helps him on the journey of, of bringing Bach back to light, you know, in, in oh, people's eyes. And, you know, I, 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 I like think, it. yeah, it's, you know, like I said, it's romantic. It's beautiful. I hope it's true. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, but in other words, he, yeah, he was a guy that was kind of under the scenes and then, uh, you know, kind of the deep. in fact, I think I was listening to a discussion talking about Mozart and Beethoven and, um, and how they would talk about Bach. And, and in those days, if you mentioned Bach, you're really talking about CPE Bach. You're talking about his yeah, son. Right. And so they would use terms like old man Bach and stuff like yes, that when yes. they were talking about uh, J.S. Bach. Yeah. Um, and how he was, and, and if you had to understand Bach, b- before you could become a great composer, you had to understand
0: Bach, mm-hmm. basically. Oh, and they was, both did, yeah. If you
1: and they both did, music, for right. sure. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, and they're a great. I mean, we haven't even gotten into uh, proponents and interpreters so much of Bach, oh, but yeah, in uh, fact, it's amazing.
1: It really is amazing, and because that goes In fact, oh, wow. Well, we need to continue this discussion because we need to talk <laughs> about Glenn Gould. We have to yeah. talk.
0: <laughs> <Yep>. that's <laughs> and, a big discussion right there.
1: It is a big discussion, yeah. but, but you know what? In fact, let, let's let's for a second. Sure. This tell the one story is Russia concert in 1957. Can you tell that story? And, yeah, uh,
0: so here's how I know. But um, first, uh, uh, for those of you who don't know who Glenn Gould is, he was um, Canadian pianist, in 1932 to 82. Quite an eccentric, uh, eccentric pianist, and you know wore for his his entire life indoors and outdoors wherever he went. He wore a coat and gloves and a hat and just you know very very interesting man. And he became sort of this avatar of, of music by Bach, and uh, has has become sort of the, the reference point for a lot of Bach's music. Now, if you listen to his uh, recordings of the entire Well-Tempered Clavier, which he's done both books, I, you might have recorded it even a couple times, uh, some of the preludes and fugues are a little bit, I, we would might say, odd or just out of what we would expect. Um, uh, but it's still amazing. You know, he, he just chose to do things and, and he also became quite a performer and a recording engineer. So not just public performances. Actually, he withdrew from public performances, uh, in the middle of his huge career, booming career. He said, no, I'm just going to make recordings because of his ideas of perfection and whatnot. So some of his pieces, especially with the Goldberg variations, the second time you recorded, you, you get more of, you see more of the artist as a, um, as a recording engineer, not just as a pianist, because there are certain um, ways that he juxtaposed different different tracks that you might not be able to do actually playing them live uh, or together. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. it's pretty amazing. But that's uh, great, wonderful pianist, and <clears throat> the, the detail. If you watch him uh, on YouTube now, you can see so much of this on YouTube. Uh, <clears throat> he gets into so so much detail and the depth of the the music and the sound and the ornaments. And, uh, hang on one second. And he also sings a lot with his playing. He's kind of, he's known for that humming along and singing along. That's right. Yeah. But, uh, back in the cold war days or no, even before that, really, but yeah, Soviet union, right after world war two, there, there were no pianists from North America that, that went to Russia. Um, there were a couple Russian pianists that had come to the U S uh, and in the order, I'm thinking, let's see, Horowitz came first, and then I think Richter came, and then, no, Gillel's first. I can't remember. And then actually this uh, th- third or fourth or fifth was this uh, woman who now teaches at McGill, Marina, um, uh, uh, I forgot her name. Uh, <laughs> I'll think of it in a second. Uh, okay. Midivani, Marina Mitivani, and then uh, Ashkenazi came after that and Berman and some others. But there weren't a lot of Western pianists going to Russia to perform. Well, Glenn Gould did in 1957. And uh, from, from those who I've spoken to, uh, one or two pianists who were actually there or around that time, uh, they said that uh, at the beginning, he went either it was St. Petersburg or Moscow, and there weren't a lot of people in the hall you know, maybe it was half full. And here's this, this pianist coming from the West playing Bach. And, of course, in Russia, every student studied Bach. You know, you you were drilled with that from the time you were a young boy or girl in the conservatory. And and uh, <clears throat> who is this Canadian pianist coming to play? Who's ever heard of Gould? So he comes to play. And it was so phenomenal what he played that during the intermission, people went out to call You know, this is before cell phones, but they tried to reach other friends or family somehow, like, you've got to come and hear this. This is an incredible piano playing. You've never heard anybody like this before. Uh, and then for the second half, the hall was completely full and, uh, just listening to all the nuances and beautiful things. And he was, he was in his mid, early to mid 20s when he went over and and did that concert. Must have been mind blowing for them to hear that wow this is a totally new way of thinking about this composer which we thought we'd figured out and we knew everything about and it was just a breath of fresh air and when you listen to his recordings um, you really do get that sense it's just so interesting and so delicate and and robust at the same time and beautiful well, always beautiful and he you know i
1: I remember hearing a, an interview with him where he even considered himself kind of a co-composer with Mm -hmm. Bach, or, or with the, with the works that he played, um, that he, that, um, he, he felt he was, uh, um, you know, not just trying to be an avatar of the composer, but but trying to co-create with, with him. And, 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 you know, maybe that might mean playing something different than what was on the page, but that, Mm -hmm. you know, he was, he was quite an eccentric and interesting,
0: yeah, I mean, he had a big ego, too. That, that, oh, for sure. That uh, certainly helped. <laughs> I wanted to and, say
1: that you're a co-creator with Bach, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess in a way, like all of us, we talk about performing and putting the composer first, and we just play what the composer tells us. And and to an extent, that's true. But it's like, what do you mean what he tells, the he or she, in, in many cases, what they tell us as composers? Because uh, the way we hear it or feel it or think about it might be different from another uh performer interpreter. And so, you know, if we have a valid reason for interpreting something one way that could be okay. And then we are kind of co-creating uh, at, on the moment, on the spot. So maybe that's what he was going for. And also, like I said, he was uh, a recording engineer and putting a lot of these things together that just would not have been really possible as uh, on in one performance. So he was creating things that weren't quite there. Uh, but yeah, but his, his seminal recordings are amazing. He did the Goldberg Variations twice: once early in his career, once late. They're both amazing, uh, and I would highly recommend listening to those and the Well-Tempered Clavier. Uh, Fantastic. You know,
1: well, I think we're gonna we're gonna leave it there for now. Again, we'll have to come back to this and maybe some more historical sure. stuff and, sure. and talk talk some more music history. But this has been a lot of fun, Elias. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's been great. It's been a lot of fun
1: yeah it has been so um, again you uh, check out uh, you can find Elias at, at his website Elias at I'll put a link there but I'll also put some show notes for some of the things that we've talked about here with these composers um, some, some links you can listen to um, I may try to find that uh, uh, you know some of that Glenn Gould stuff as well um, but again the really fascinating stuff thanks again and everyone thanks, you know the drill You've been listening to End If Love Remains. You are listening to End If Love Remains. A unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett.